about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Hey everyone, I'm Rachel and we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 to 3 verse 7. Um, you can Read that along on your piece of paper or there are church Bibles in the pews in front of you as well. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe in the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, today in our series on 1 Peter, we reach one of those terrible passages. Perhaps if you know the letter, you've been worried about it since we began, or perhaps gleefully waiting to watch me squirm. I hope not, but, you know, it is possible. Somebody this morning said, yes, that was me. Um, reading this passage makes, us, makes many of us, at least, uncomfortable, maybe even angry. What's the worst bit, do you think? Is it the idea of slaves being told to put up with beatings? Or maybe wives being told to submit to husbands who may not be very nice at all? Maybe the mention of a gentle and quiet spirit gets your goat, Or maybe it's women being called weaker. You may even feel irritated with me that I've permitted the passage to be read publicly. It's important to stress as well that for many people, the ideas here are not academic. I want to recognise at the outset that I think this text makes clear contact with the issue of domestic violence. I'm sure you noticed that phrase at the end of verse 6, in chapter 3. Have, you, have the text open before you. I'm not going to put it up all on screen because it's just a bit long, uh, but I will refer to it. That, that phrase at the end of verse 6 of chapter 3, and do not give way to fear. It's probably better translated that phrase, don't fear intimidation. Um, some of the wives, verses 1 to 6, were aimed at were Women living under the threat and reality of violence, I think. And that is sadly still a reality today within churches as well as 
outside them. And tragically, that's also true of slavery. People are kept in forms of slavery in Australia all the time. Well, it's not huge numbers, but they are real numbers. They're, they're, they're much hu huger than they should be. Through threats of threats and manipulation. Have a look, if you never have, at the website of IJM, International Justice Ministries, if you don't know anything about this. So what the hell are we doing? Just putting a text like this out there. And more deeply, how can a passage like this be God's word to us today? Well, today, uh, this evening, I want to persuade you that if that's what you're thinking, this passage is not your enemy, but your friend. Even more, if that's what you're thinking, you're thinking it partly because the ideas in this passage have done their work. I hope that even if you find it pretty hard to hear this passage read, I hope you'll be able to stay with me for a bit and see if things are not quite what they seem at first, or at least if there are other things that you're not seeing. I really believe that far from reflection of the goodness of God. I'm going to proceed in three stages. First, I want to show you why I think this passage is way more interesting than we're inclined to see it. Then second, we'll try to understand what Peter is doing here. Okay? And then finally, we'll begin talking about how this text applies to us today. But I've also asked Joe Charles to come up at the end and respond to the sermon. Uh, Joe's a member of the morning congregation. I'll introduce her at the end. But I've been chatting with Joe about this text over the past couple of weeks, and I thought it'd be great to hear her voice as well. So that's where we're going. Make sense? Okay. Let's start then by thinking about uh, why this pa passage is more interesting than we assume. And I want to begin by noticing something a bit odd, which is that this passage, it would have been just as challenging to the world it was originally written to as it is to ours, but for exactly the opposite reasons. What the Roman world would have found deeply challenging and confronting about this passage is not what it says about submission and obedience. That would have been uncontroversial. But what it would have found challenging is the fact that it says it at all and the way that it says it, because what this passage does is it speaks to slaves and wives as people who matter, people with as much moral agency and dignity as anyone else. We need to notice things that we just slide over because we're so used to them. First, notice simply the space that these instructions take up. Slaves and wives are addressed at more length than anyone else in the letter. Notice too that Peter chooses the instruction to slaves as the place to put one of his deepest and most profound statements about Jesus, verses 22 to 25. Here and elsewhere in this, in this passage, there is a clear intention that these instructions to slaves and to wives will be helpful for everybody in living the Christian life. Wives and even slaves are being put forward as examples for Christians. These lives, Peter is saying, are the best place to learn to live the Christian life. Notice how throughout the passage, slaves and wives are spoken to with dignity and, and seriousness. This passage follows straight on from the statement we read two weeks ago, um, but it's, it's the bit before this, but we had a week's break. So if you look back, this statement where, where Peter says, live as free people in chapter 2, verse 16. And what he means is that in truth, you slaves are free because God has set you free, and so what you choose to do, you do freely. Slaves are therefore called to submit to their masters, not because they have to, but because they fear God, verse 18. You act this way, Peter says, because you are conscious of God. Did you notice that, verse 19? And your action, he says, is commendable before God. What is going on here is that the action of Christian slaves is being dignified and admired as an act of faith. Most of all, notice verses 22 to 25. Peter puts those comments here 
these comments about Jesus and being like Jesus, he puts them here because he wants to make sure we know they apply to slaves. Verse 24, he bore our sins, says Peter, to slaves. So what he's saying there is he bore your sins, slaves, on his, in his body on the cross. He died for you. You are worth enough for him to die for you. And everybody else, if you want to learn that, you can look at the slaves. Wives, too, are spoken to with moral seriousness as examples of Christian faith. Notice how in verse 1 of chapter 3, he commends to them a course of action in the hope that it will lead to the conversion of their non-Christian husbands. Now, that's pretty controversial in the Roman world and actually in any patriarchal situation. The wife trying to convert her husband to a whole different way of thinking, a whole different faith. But it's because Peter, like Jesus, like the whole New Testament actually, actually sees these women and takes them fully seriously as, as spiritual beings and moral agents, people who act and who matter. Notice too the way Peter's advice treats wives seriously as spiritual persons of great dignity. Your beauty, have a look at that phrase in verse 4. He says, your beauty should be that of your inner self. Literally, this is a beautiful phrase. It's, it's the hidden person of the heart. Your beauty should be the beauty of the hidden person of the heart or the secret person of the heart. I can't think of a clearer way to affirm the moral dignity of a person than to see them as someone with a hidden person of the heart that really matters before God. And notice lastly the final exhortation in verse 6. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. The word right there is literally good. It's the same idea as we saw two weeks ago when Peter spoke about deliberately, he spoke deliberately about doing good. In chapter 2 verses 12 and 15. He keeps, he's saying how we to live in the world, we're to seek to do good. And now he says, wives, you too must seek to do good. And he says, they must not let their moral agency, their freedom, be squashed by the threats and intimidation of others. Don't be squashed, Peter says. Don't let anyone tell you you are nothing. And don't have freedom. And can't have aims and goals of your own. And can't be a Christian. And can't act out of that faith. You mustn't let yourself be bullied like that, says Peter. Why? Because you are someone with a hidden person of the heart, living before God and who he is delighted in. So it's not surprising then, is it, what Peter says in the one verse, notice that, just one verse addressed to husbands. Your wives, he says in verse 7, are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Just put aside for the moment the comment about weaker partners. Right? We'll come back to that, I promise. But just notice this comment, heirs with you. This is an expression of simple equality. You and your wives inherit together, Peter says. Women have not always been able to inherit anything. Well, says Peter, you have an exactly equal share in the only inheritance that will matter in the end. You know what would have been really bad, really, really terrible? if there had been nothing in this letter about slaves or wives. Because then we would have had to expect that Peter just assumed the validity of the Roman world and the way it saw things. Roman household codes, this is a kind of household code, Roman household codes, they revolved around the male head of the family called the pater familias, the father of the family, and he was the main person addressed. If Peter had not said these things, we might have wondered actually whether this letter was addressed to slaves and women at all, whether they even counted as persons. But instead we have this, we have this extraordinary passage in which not only are slaves and, and wives treated as persons, they are treated as equals and in fact examples. And the pater familias, 
the head of the family, he's addressed last and almost as an afterthought. Earliest Christianity was immensely popular among slaves and women. And this is why. Because slaves and women were seen. They were taken seriously. They were seen as having dignity and spiritual significance and freedom. And that's why this passage is much more interesting. It should be much more interesting to us than we assume. Okay, so if you're with me so far, let's then look at this passage and try to get a sense of what Peter is doing here. What is Peter doing in this passage? The first thing to see is that he is not calling for revolution in any straightforward sense. He doesn't say to slaves, cast off the yoke of your masters and rise up against them. Maybe you wanted him to say that. He, did, he doesn't say that. Could he have said that? Could Peter have said that? Could Paul have said that in, in similar passages in his letters? Well, not without fundamentally changing the character of early Christianity. To take on, to try and overthrow the structures of slavery and the family with a male head, that would have meant to challenge the fundamental structure of the Roman Empire, that the household with household servants was just how the Roman world and the Roman economy worked. That was how businesses, that, that, was, that was the business. That was how things worked. I guess it would have been possible to try to overthrow that whole structure, though I doubt they would have succeeded. But to try to overthrow that would have required turning the early Christian movement into a movement that was primarily political. A movement seeking to change the structures of power here and now as its first priority. And the earliest Christians didn't do that. I think for the simple reason that Jesus didn't do that either. He did not come just to build a kingdom of this world. Now, I want to stress that that does not mean that the church and the gospel have no political implications and impacts. They did then and they do now. There is no hard border between religion and politics. They intersect into each other all the time. We've already seen in 1 Peter that Christian faith changed all sorts of things, including things like the way people thought about the Roman emperor. Here we see it changing the way slaves and wives think about themselves. And all these things have an impact on politics. And over time, they did have an impact on the Roman Empire, including the way it thought about slaves. But that was a slow revolution. It was a slow revolution. Because the church wasn't principally about changing the social and power structures of this world. Now again, let me emphasize that that does not mean Christians shouldn't be interested in politics or in creating more just social and power structures. I think we should be interested in those things. In our context, in which we have opportunity and power to seek these things, to make a difference in those ways, we should do that. But we do so not because that's the main thing the gospel is about. No, we do so because they are good works that are open to us. To participate in politics, to make our voices heard on an issue, to try to you know, engage in that way, they may well be the good deeds that we are called to do in the freedom that God has given us. But in Peter's context, things were different, actually. The slaves and wives that he addressed did not have the legal and social freedom to just change their situation. Those were not good works that were available to them in any simple sense. And so Peter doesn't call for them because that would have been to change fundamentally what Christianity was about. Peter just does, in the end, care less about the structures of power in his world and more about the actual people he's writing to. And their faith before God, he believes they, those people are precious to God. And that their lives, however limited, however unjust, however constrained, 
are still free to be lives that are pleasing and beautiful in God's sight. In the second place, though, it's crucial to see that Peter is also not justifying or sanctifying oppression and hierarchy. It might seem like he is, because we think that if he doesn't speak against these things, then he must be implicitly for them, right? No, that's not right. Because there is a difference between accepting the fact of a situation, the reality of a situation, there is a difference between accepting that and arguing that it is valid and good. Slavery and patriarchy were simple realities in, people, in Peter's world. They defined the lives and experience of most of his hearers. They are some of the human institutions Peter speaks of back in chapter 2, verse 13. Do you remember back, it was two weeks ago now, so you may not remember, but Peter, he starts this whole section by saying, accept the authority of every human institution. These are human institutions they have to wrestle with. And Peter speaks into this situation, accepting the reality of this, but that doesn't mean he defends it and justifies it. Actually, he doesn't do that. Look at the passage again. Nothing in what Peter says to slaves implies the validity of slavery. Where it says in verse 21, to this you were called, he doesn't mean that the master's authority is appointed by God or something like that. No, he clearly means that you are called to suffer. You are called, what you're called to is to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. Peter is saying, slaves, your submission to your masters, it can be an act of faith and even an experience of God's grace. It can be a profound image of the way of Jesus Christ who suffered rather than fighting back. Similarly, the only thing in the instructions to wives that could be taken as validating the authority of their husbands is the mention of the holy women of the past. But actually, that's not a justification. It's just a way of recognizing that it is possible to live a holy and faithful life in a situation like this. Peter says, remember Sarah and the holy women of the past. They were able to live good lives even within that situation, submitting to their husbands. It's worth noticing this point because it's different to what we might expect. There are other texts in the Bible that make theological statements about the authority of a husband. And I don't mean to deny that Peter could have said anything good about that. In Ephesians, for example, Paul talks about the husband as the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. But what I want to notice here today, because that's a whole other sermon, right? But what I want to notice here is that's not what Peter does here. He makes no real effort to justify or sanctify the husband's authority. He just sees it as a, a human reality they have to work with. What he does want to sanctify is the wife's willing submission and respect in the hope of winning her husband to Christ. So Peter is neither calling for revolution nor justifying structures of oppression. Instead, what he is doing is trying to help real people live as disciples of Jesus within deeply difficult situations. He is seeking to help people discern a way of living faithfully and generously within situations in which they were mistreated and felt powerless. And so without justifying mistreatment at all, he says to slaves that there is a path for you to walk even within this awful situation potentially. There is a path for you to walk that is pleasing to God. When you suffer for doing good and endure it, that is commendable to God and you are following Christ who, like you do, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And to wives, some of whom were clearly in very frightening situations. Their husbands didn't believe, maybe threatened them with divorce if they didn't give up the faith or menaced them with their strength. Notice again that last comment, do not 
be intimidated. He says, Peter says, there is a path for you to walk. Even within this very difficult situation, there is a path that is pleasing to God. You can submit to your husband in a way that is full of worth in God's sight. You can follow the example of women from the past who were deeply virtuous and admirable, and you might even win over your husband. And who knows? With what, who knows what God will do with this? Who knows with what beauty this will appear one day? You can act with purpose and faith and not just be bullied. That's what I think Peter's doing in this passage overall. Uh, And I hope you find it interesting. Can't guarantee that, but I hope you do. Hope it makes you think. But that leads us to the last task of this sermon, which is to think about how we receive this teaching today. As we've already observed, our context is pretty different to Peter's in a whole range of ways. But I think the two most obvious and important differences are that slavery is illegal and husbands do not have sole legal authority within a family. The whole idea of a paterfamilias is gone. So how then do Peter's words apply and help us live within our different context? Well, I'm going to try to get at this by talking about four particular situations. They won't take long, but um, they will, and they won't cover everything, but they will help us think about application. So let's begin by considering what this text says to someone who is in fact a slave. It would be great if this was an unreal situation, but it isn't. Even in Australia, as I said before, There are people in some form of slavery. Passports are taken, wages withheld, threats of reporting to immigration are made. So how should a person in a situation like that hear this text? Well, let this person hear first the dignity and preciousness of their life before God. Jesus bore your sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sin and live for righteousness. What a word. You are called and set free for a life of stunning beauty in God's sight, and you have a shepherd and overseer of your soul. In fact, let's all hear this reminder. If we notice anything in this text, let us notice the way Peter speaks to Christian slaves as equals and as exemplars of what it means to follow Jesus. Secondly, though, let this person in this situation also notice that they have no reason to accept their oppressor's right to do so. In the Roman world, that was simply a fact of the powers that be, that slavery was an institution, and it could not be undone in any simple way. Here... Slavery is a shameful and criminal secret. And you are not called, God's word says, to accept authority that is simply criminal. Rather, you are called to do good in the fear of God. And that means, if you can, finding a way out. Okay, what about a second situation? The situation of having a boss who is a bully. This one, probably a bit closer to home. Uh, I hope this is not you, but it might be. What is a person in that situation called to do? Do Paul's words to slaves apply? Should an employee just accept their mistreatment? Well, let me say three things quickly. First, this situation is different to the first situation of modern slavery because a boss is a legitimate authority in the way that a criminal slave operator is not. So there is a respect and submission to that human authority that is appropriate. The Bible says, accept the authority of human institutions. Second, though, there are other very important differences. An employee is not a slave, however hard they might work or be asked to work. And a boss does not have the same level of authority that a paterfamilias had in the Roman world. A boss's authority has clear legal limits. And outside those, it loses its legitimacy. A worker is never called to submit to what a boss does unlawfully. 
to bullying or sexual harassment, for example. Those are points, actually, where a person ought, again, to hear the affirmations in this text of the dignity and moral significance of each one of us. I reckon this is a moment to hear the word, live as free people. You matter to God. You are his. Jesus died for you. So don't let people treat you as if you are less than that, as if you are not free to live like that. If you have a legitimate complaint, your calling as a Christian may be to use that freedom to speak up, to protest. Finally, though, third thing, we need to recognize that it isn't always this neat. Some bosses are expert at walking on the line, at manipulation, at gaslighting, and bullying in subtle, hard-to-get-at-and-see ways. And some of us and many people around the world will just be stuck in situations in which we're being treated unjustly and we don't have a lot of options. And if that is your situation, I think this text speaks also a word of comfort and encouragement. It says, without justifying that situation, that's bad, but it says that there is still a way that you can live well and faithfully in a way that is pleasing to God and even an image of Jesus Christ. If you can use your freedom to change the situation, do. But if you can't, know that the shepherd and overseer of your souls, he sees you and he cares about you and he will judge justly in the end. Okay, the third situation I want to think about, even though it's pretty difficult for some, is a marriage in which there is violence. Let's assume in this case it takes the pattern that is by far the most common, of a husband being violent or abusive to his wife. Does this passage teach such a wife to stay put and put up with it? I want to be heard loudly and clearly. It does not teach that. It does not teach that. Why not? Because the passage calls wives to do good and not give way to fear. And in our context, I think that may well mean seeking to be free from an abusive husband. I emphasised before that this passage does not seek to justify the authority of the husband and certainly not his unlimited authority. Rather, this passage speaks to wives in a situation where that authority was a simple fact. In the Roman world, as in many places today, for a husband to abuse his wife was at best ambiguous and at worst simply fine. But that is not our situation. That is not the situation we are under. Violence in marriages and families is criminal and has absolutely nothing to cover it, kind of formally. And it has no justification for a Christian. A Christian wife is not called to endure anything from her husband. On the contrary, she is called to refuse to have her dignity and value bullied out of her. And she's called to seek to do good. What is that good? Well, as I said... It may be to seek to be free of an abusive husband. And I want to add that if a wife comes to me or to any of the staff looking for help to do this, we will help. We will try. It's often very complicated, but we will try to help. What we will not do is tell her that her job is to stay and submit. Now, that does not mean that a wife in a situation like that must do this. It doesn't mean it's all simple. The last thing I want to do is to be another man telling people what they must do in that situation. The point is she is free in the Lord. Free to use the legal freedom she has to change her situation. If that's the good path she sees before her. That said, again, we have to emphasize here that having legal freedom to do something and actually being able to do it, they are different things. There are tragically many women who are not free in this way, who are stuck 
and in many ways powerless. I wish it wasn't like that, but it is. Well, to them, this passage again says that even in that place of injustice and constraint, even there, there is a path for you to walk in freedom that is of great worth in God's sight, that is as good as any life. You are not deprived of your dignity and agency by your unjust situation. So don't be afraid. Seek to do good. Who knows what God will bring out of it? And who can tell now with what beauty it will appear on the last day? Okay, one last situation that is, thank God, more common. A marriage that is more or less ordinary. How does this passage speak to that situation? Well, we could say much more here. There's a lot more to say about marriage than is said here. Um, But all I want to do is draw our attention back to Peter's brief words to husbands in verse 7. If you've got it, have a look at it. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I suspect your attention will be drawn again by the words, the weaker partner. But try to notice first the big picture. What Peter is calling husbands to here is to relate to their wives with respect and essentially as equals. They are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, he says. And so you need to live with them thoughtfully and considerately. And if you do, he says, your wives might become partners in a deeper and richer way. I think that's what he means at the end when he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's imagining a husband and a wife being able to help one another forward as partners in faith rather than getting in each other's way. Now, there is a recognition here of the inequality of men and women, but not inequality in the sense of standing or value as persons or preciousness in God's sight or in the kingdom. Actually, Peter says, in those senses, you're absolutely equal. But inequality in the, in, in the small sense of just not being the same. And this not the sameness, it requires thoughtfulness from you, husbands, Peter says. You need to take care over it and you need to pay attention to it. Now, why does he describe this not the sameness in terms of women being weaker? I think Peter simply means that on average, men are physically bigger and stronger. Not all the time, just on average. And so this is a feature of most marriages. Uh, Not every marriage, of course, right? I reckon if you'd pointed out to Peter that actually in some senses women are stronger, they they live longer, they endure worse pain in childbirth, I think Peter would have just said, "That's that's not what I meant. What he means is just to contrast the way a husband should live with what the wives he speaks to in verses 1 to 6 are experiencing. They are living in a situation where the husband's strength is menacing. Peter calls husbands to make their strength instead a gift to their wives so that together, as co-heirs, they can pursue the life of faith. So I think what we see here is a vision for marriage becoming a spiritual partnership Prayer together as co-heirs of the kingdom. People who are not the same, blessing one another through their mutual strength. And we could say a lot more about that, and there is more to say about marriage, but that is a very positive picture, and I hope a good place to end for now. Okay, I'm going to invite Jo up now. Um, If you don't know her, Jo Charles is a member of the Morning Congregation. As I said, she and her husband, Michael, were missionaries in Chile for many years. Joe now works as a counsellor and a teacher. Um, I've been talking through some of this with Joe over the past couple of weeks. So uh, I think we're broadly on the same page. And I mean, if she likes the sermon, it's because she helped write it. So, um, but I wanted to give her the chance to respond and react, so I'm just going to let her say some things. Um, and also just to add anything you want to, Joe. 
Um, and then Joe's going to stay up here, and we're doing okay for time. We're going to make some time for questions, and we can answer them together. Um, Joe, over to you. What do you want to say? Alrighty, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I I really loved you, the way that you drew attention to the fact that Peter spends um, extra time speaking to slaves and women. I hadn't noticed that before. And I think there is a way that that really affirms their personhood and gives them dignity. Um, yeah, so that was really helpful. But one thing that struck me as I was listening was that it sounds a little bit like we're saying, well, isn't that great of Peter? He's read the social norms of the time and he's really you know, honed into that and so that's really helpful. But this is actually God's word to us. Um, so it's actually God saying to us, I am a God who cares about the oppressed. I'm a God who mm. sees their cries, uh, sees their distress and, and listens to their cries. Uh, we see that all through the Bible. So this is like an outworking of that, which is really encouraging. And it's especially beautiful the way that he speaks to slaves and basically calls their suffering precious in some way in his eyes because he likens it to the suffering of, you know, the most precious suffering of all, which was Christ's suffering. Um, what an honour, in a way. If, you're in a, if you were in a space where you absolutely thought you had no... Well, you didn't have any agency at all, to be told that somehow what you were enduring was beautiful is, is really quite extraordinary. That's sort of the god of reversals at work, isn't it? Mm. Um, and again, I particularly love that phrase, the hidden person of the heart. Um, I think there's something deeply comforting in knowing that God cares about and affirms our personhood. So who I am as a person, how I relate to him, how I relate to others, that is the essence of who I am. And my circumstances cannot take that away from me. Mm. Mm. Um, when we're working with people with trauma, they so often define themselves by the terrible things that have happened to them. And it's so tempting to go to that place and see yourself as that and nothing more. But this speaks a different word to us, mm. and it's incredibly encouraging. Um, oppression strips people of their personhood. This passage says, you have a voice, you are worth something. Don't forget that. Um, mm. He's saying, you actually really matter, no matter what you're suffering. Um, and so that's encouraging and empowering. Um, uh, yeah, and it links back to that that 2.16 that says, because you are God's slaves, you are free, which is just a beautiful paradox. Um, I think as well it infuses hope because it means that what we do and say, who we are, always matters and always makes a difference because it grows us as a person and it may have an effect on the other person. But there is always hope because what we do and say always matters. Um, it's not good for us to give in to fear and it's not good for the other person if we allow them to keep doing what they're doing. It's actually dangerous for their soul as well to be an abuser. It's not loving to let someone keep sinning against you. Um, it's actually right and good to stand up against it. Um, I'm particularly thankful that you said so clearly that we do not believe that this passage means that women must submit to an ungodly husband. I have seen and spoken with so many women who have been deeply hurt by this passage being taken out of context, who've thought that their job was to go like a lamb to the slaughter, just like Jesus, and that they need to just be quiet and put up with it. And that's just... Sometimes it's because they've thought that, other times they have been told that. Um, and that's a great wickedness. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I thank, thank you for saying that. Um, as a church, we do want to help women um, or anyone who is suffering in in an oppressive relationship. And I think I would also say that's not only physical violence. Um, any relationship where there is coercive control, using words or intimidation, sexual threats, threats to animals, um, it, you know, all those sorts of things are also oppression. Can I just say something there? I actually was thinking about this today and I, I think the thing they were frightened about, this just fits with what you're saying, Actually, one of the things was probably the threat of divorce. Mm. Because in that context, to be a divorce woman, you were... Done for. You actually... Had nothing. Real you had nothing. Trouble. Yeah. And, and it was very possible that you had non-pagan Roman husbands threatening them with divorce unless they gave up their faith, mm. I think. And, and Peter says, well, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. 
and I think that's quite striking. Mm. Sorry, I think that's no, no. good what you Yeah, saying. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and I think that there's ways in which sometimes the shame of what's happening can stop you. So fear of shame is another thing that can stop people from coming forward. Um, yeah, and, if, and I guess the other thing I would say is, is that if you are in a situation that you absolutely don't feel that you can get out of, whether it be a work situation or a relationship situation, it's still worthwhile talking to someone to think about what it looks like to live well in that space. Yeah. Even if you decide not to leave, it's still worthwhile getting help to navigate. Thanks, Joe. That's really helpful because I did, in the, what I said about particular situations, I did try and be careful to walk that line between um, saying I think there is, a, there, is a, there is a call here to use the freedoms we have, but also that's not always possible, and what Peter's doing is affirming the life lived even within that difficulty. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to say anything else? Nope. <laughs> All right. Shall we ask for questions? We might need a bit of help with the microphones with this. And is there... Can we get the sound person, whoever it is, Abe, could we just... You know, this is not ideal. I should have got another microphone teed up. Oh, Joe, you use... Joe's going to use one of the singing mics and Maddie will take wireless one around. Is that okay, Abe? All right. But at the moment, she's on... Emily's mic. No. No. But you can only sing when you're holding that. <laughs> okay. So let's just let's just see if this anybody wants to ask a question. Obviously some questions would need private discussion. And that's okay. We welcome that. But um, if somebody wants to ask a clarifying question or or say something, now's a good chance. Pam I don't really know how to ask this, but, or exactly where I'm going with it, but uh, from the Bible, the Bible tells me that God hates divorce. So how do you reconcile what, you know, what you're saying with violence in marriage and divorce? I mean, how do you reconcile the, the two things? So um, do, you wanna, do you want me to say something first about that? So, I'll say something after. Um, please do. Um, I think that that, that phrase is... Uh, I mean, it's hard to translate that phrase, actually, but it is an expression of God's attitude to... You know, Jesus says, what, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, right? But he also hates violence, and he hates adultery, and those are things that break marriages, so God can hate divorce and it still be the best thing to do. Um, I, I, do, I do not think it is true that it's never right to separate. Right? Um, actually, it, is, uh, it can be right to separate. Um, and it, I think the way we should interpret that phrase, if we're going to say God hates divorce, is, is to say, so he hates the thing that has caused this. Right? Especially. Um, but he, he, he also hates the mistreatment of people. He hates the abuse and the, um, you know, the, the dismissal and bullying of his people. So um, to take that phrase from... Where is that from? Is it Hosea? Mal Malachi? It's from Malachi. It is... Uh, it's from, from one of the prophets. It doesn't feature a lot in my... But to take that phrase and say that's all there is to be said about this is to discount actually all the other things the New Testament says. Micah, maybe. Micah. That sounds right. Yeah. Somebody could Google it. Um, and I just, I just don't think that that is enough of a practical... Like, there's more to say about what to do. It's one of the facts to have in your thinking about what should be done. But it doesn't mean divorce is always the wrong course of action. Sometimes it's the right one, I think. Do you want to, what would you say? Yeah, I would say that. I would say as well, yes, God definitely hates divorce because the vision for marriage is glorious and it points towards something glorious. And so to see that not work is, is terrible. That's a sad thing. Um, 
But I think as a church, we really want to be careful about caring more for the institution of marriage than we care for the people who are in it. Like, we don't want to hold marriage up so highly that the people within it are not well treated. Um, and it's interesting, Jesus is his wife, apart from porneia, you know, sexual immorality. Um, and so Jesus is even saying, well, there's one case where it's fine, you know, where it's acceptable. Um, so it feels to me that it can't be wrong if Jesus says there's one case when it could be the right thing to do. Um, you don't have to divorce in that case, but you are free to if it's the right thing. Um, uh, I had something else in my head, but it's gone. I think yeah. the Apostle Paul says a similar thing. You know, in First Corinthians 7, where he's talking about she should not separate, but if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Uh, that, that's a, a place where he recognises this has to happen sometimes. Right? And the fact that, that, that God's intention for marriage is that it be permanent doesn't mean it must always... That, it, that is the course of action that you must always take above all others. I just think that's, a, that's, that's been a tool of abuse, the use of the verse that way. Thank you for the question, though, Pam. I, I'm conscious, as I say this, that I have not taught, done enough teaching on marriage and divorce. We're um, doing a series on Genesis 1 to 3 next term. That will be the start of saying some things. It'll come up. It's in the Bible. So, but I appreciate the question. Nick. Um, I was... I was hoping you might be able to elaborate on what we should take the phrase a gentle and quiet spirit to mean. Is that something which is uh, specific to, to wives in this case? Or is this something which he talks about in this context, but is this something we should all be aspiring to? So, just let me say quickly, actually, P Peter does use the same words for everybody in chapter 3. Not, not both of the same words, but... In chapter 3, 15, uh, he says, um, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Those are, it's the same idea there, actually. Um, the word quiet um, is not about silence. It's about a kind of orderliness and respectfulness. So in 1 Timothy 2, it, it, Paul talks about living peaceable and quiet lives. This is for everybody. And what he means is, you know, lives that are not um, super disruptive. So I think it's, it is actually a virtue that in certain circumstances is right for all Christians. Um, and it's not, about, it's not primarily about silence. What would you say about that? Mm, yeah, it's, it's more of the idea, I would say, of it's less about volume and more about manner. You know, there's ways of um, confronting evil that... And I think you mentioned this this morning, Andrew, um, if we liken it to that passage of Jesus, who there was no deceit in his mouth, he didn't retaliate oh, yeah. and he didn't... Make any threats. Make any threats. You know, if, if a woman is leaving her husband, there's ways that she can... Or if a wife is living with a, with a husband who's oppressing her, there's ways that she can speak against that, that don't threaten and don't retaliate and don't involve deceit. And that, I think, would be, you know, a quiet and gentle-spirited way of doing it. And then there's other ways that are more haranguing and, and that, probably less effective. Does that help, Nick? Yes, I'm satisfied with that answer. <laughs> 100. Caitlin. And then I reckon we'd better finish maybe one or two. And then... Unless this is difficult, in which case we're just finished. <laughs> you can pass this question if you want to. Um, I'm just wondering whether you could just unpack a little bit. As you predicted, I feel like the word submission is a tricky one for us. And I'm just wondering if you could unpack that a little more, particularly as it appears in verse 1. And I'm assuming it's a parallel to, to what appears earlier in, in, in verse 18. And how we're to, to make sense of that language. So I think in the, the, the first thing to say about that is that one of the reasons we find it difficult is that in the Roman world it wasn't complicated at all, right? It was just the, the fact was the husband was the legal authority and so what he said was what 
people had to do. And Peter is essentially saying, when he says submit, he's just saying, so, so just go with that, right? A accept his authority. This is the situation you're in. It's a human institution where he has been given authority and you are called to accept that and submit to it. Um, and submit there means, I think, you know, um, go with the decisions he's made, for example. Um, and so a slave is called not to resist, but if the, the paterfamilias says do this, then try and do it. Um, now, I've, I've made, I hoped to make clear that I actually think that takes a different character in our situation because at least one of the elements that made that make sense is not here anymore. Right? One of the elements that made that make sense was the legal position of husbands. But that's not there. And so if we're going to think about you know, what, how marriage works today, this passage doesn't give you a heap of help, actually, except for, and that's why I focused on that last bit in verse 7, I think it's a vision for kind of equality and partnership. That said, I think the Bible does have other, that has other moments where it recognises um, a, a kind of good way of retrieving an order within marriage. And I think in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about submission in a, in a more positive way. Um, but I just can't do that sermon tonight. And I think whatever we say about that, it ought to be informed by this. And it ought to still be, it ought to be conscious of the, the cultural difference, right? I think too, too often we forget that, that husbands were, like, they were in charge in the Roman world in a way that I can't, if, if Lauren doesn't want to do what I want to do, you know, with the kids where we send them to school, I can't get her in trouble with the police, right? Like, it's just, you know, it doesn't work like that. I have, we're, we're equal. Like, we have, we have, that wasn't true in the Roman world. A husband, you could punish somebody if they didn't do what you said. I'm, I'm really glad that's not how it is anymore. It'd be really hard work. Um, and be awful for everybody else. Imagine how... I'm just really glad it's not like that anymore. But I, think, I do think that, that... That was a trivial comment, obviously. Be, obviously. Obviously, it's much worse for everybody else, but... Dumb joke. I should stop. But I do think I do think that's like the starting point is actually to register that it wasn't complicated then, and so whatever we want to say about it has to be a bit complicated because of that. What would you say, Joe? I would say that any any um, Bible uh, biblical concept shouldn't be an island all by itself. So you never want to take Ephesians 5 and say, women submit, you know, and that's all we know about that. If we look at what the Bible says in other places about authority, it's not an oppressive from the top squashing of the other person. Like, I don't know, Mark 10, where James and John, James and John say, can, uh, yeah, James and John say, can we, can we sit at your right hand, mm. on yeah, your right yeah, and left? Yeah, yeah. Basically, they're asking for authority. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you are asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Because authority means laying down your life for other people. Like, so if a husband wants to be the head of his wife, he can go ahead and be the head of being sorry first, asking forgiveness, offering to serve. Yeah, like, yeah. There's so many ways that a husband can be the head. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I'll, like, I'll just go ahead and give the conclusion of my sermon on Ephesians 5, which is that Exactly what Joe said, right? I, I think what Ephesians 5, you see Paul doing, is he's saying, he's talking to a Roman world, and so he says, wives, submit to your husbands, totally uncontroversial. But then he says, let me tell you what that's going to be submitting to. It needs to be submitting to his taking the initiative in loving you like Christ loved the church. And you're called to respect that. And I actually think that is dismantling the Roman ideal from within and leading towards a kind of idea of marriage as a spiritual partnership. And, and I think that's what you see happening there as well as here, but in different terms. Does that fit with what you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for the question. I think there was another hand, but there's one more. James, is it okay if we don't? Can we leave that? I'm sure it's an amazing question, but the time is getting on. 
Not everybody is as interested in this as me. I would like to finish with a prayer, though, because for some people, this just really want to remember that even though it's got a bit lighthearted just now, this is really hard stuff for some people, and so I don't. I want to finish seriously. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you that the life you have given us in your Son, Jesus, is full of hope, even when our situations are very difficult. We thank you so much for this word that you bore our sins, all our sins, in your body on the cross. Thank you that by your Spirit you put before us a path of obedience and freedom and dignity even when we have very little choice and even when life is really difficult. Lord, help us to find that path and to see it and to see it for others. Help us to remember the dignity and your love for those around us. And where we see injustice, not to put up with it, because we know that you love the people in those situations deeply. Lord, have mercy on us as a church and free us from the evils that so easily accrue to power and privilege. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this word and ask that you would teach us to live for Jesus as we keep considering it. In his name we pray. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.